In lecture one, we took care of some preliminaries. First, our cautionary note to avoid thinking that our discussion of any of these details, whether through scripture or history, is in any way a reflection on the Jewish people today. It is not. Second, we looked to our sources of information for the trial of Jesus. And finally, we considered how scholars tend to divide, more or less, in their treatment of the trial. In this lecture two, we will look at who the parties were, what they cared about. We'll then turn to the plan of those parties for the arrest of Jesus, the issuance of his arrest warrant, as it were. Then we'll go to the Garden of Gethsemane and see who was there and what was done. We begin with an understanding of who wanted Jesus arrested and why. We have three main groups you need to know about, Sadducees, Pharisees, and Herodians. First are the Sadducees, and we discussed them extensively earlier. These were the priests and members of the upper strata ruling class, the leaders of the Sanhedrin, the top dogs. They were religiously conservative, but worldly, and didn't believe in life after death. But let's talk about the elders, who were also associated with the Sadducees, because that's a term we'll hear in the course of our study here. When you hear the word elder in scripture, what that refers to are the heads of families of lay nobility. These were the dons, the lords. They were the top dogs of the top dogs. But it was a little more than that, and with quite a historical backdrop. Elders were, in fact, elderly, but quite distinguished as elderly. We tend to forget the homage that younger people paid older people through history, because that seems less and less the case in our time. I thank God I'm not a baby boomer, having just missed being one. The baby boomers, I think, are idiots. Well, if it's a class, of course. At least that's what I think, not having much regard for the Woodstock generation that was just ahead of me. It freaked me out as a kid growing up. They freak me out now, too, but for different reasons. But it wasn't that way in ancient times, nor in ancient Israel. For one thing, if you got to be old, that was a pretty good accomplishment, given high mortality rates. You think people in Palm Springs Springs congratulate themselves enough for swinging golf clubs in their 80s? Imagine what you thought of someone in ancient Israel who could press his own olive oil in his 80s. Of course, you were older when you were younger back then. Their 40s was like our 70s. You could be an elder in your 40s. The high priest was required to step aside and retire by about the age of 45. So you retire, you become known as an elder, and then you become a kind of distinguished consultant along with those others of your class to the city, to the nation, or to the king, and you were considered among the wise. When Ezekiel is prophesying about the calamities to come, he says, quote, priestly instruction in the law will cease, and the counsel of the elders will come to an end. That was, in other words, to be a very bad thing. You would have elders of a people. The book of Numbers, chapter 22, refers to the, quote, elders of Moab, and the elders of Midian. Before Moses approached the Pharaoh, it says, he consulted with, quote, the elders of Egypt. Elsewhere throughout scripture, you have elders of an area, as in the elders of Gilead, referred to in the book of Judges, or the elders of a tribe in Deuteronomy, or the diaspora in Jeremiah, or of the priests in 2 Kings and in Jeremiah, elders of the city and of the palace, but also, most prominently in the first century, the elders were elders of Jerusalem 
And these are the people we are to think of when we hear the term elder. Powerful, wealthy men whose wisdom was valued, even if they may have only inherited the power and wealth part. But apart from the Sadducees and the elders among them, you have the Pharisees. They get a lot of attention in Scripture, and so you think that they were the top dogs too, but they weren't. They represented the middle class, as it were. They believed in the strictest observance of the law, where not one jot or tittle should be missed. I like that phrase, jot or tittle. It's one of those phrases that comes to us from Scripture and has worked its way into common English usage, even though we have no idea what it means. A jot is derived from the Hebrew term jod, which is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. A tittle is the word for those tiny dots that appear over letters, like over I's or J's. We moderns like to sniff at the thought of ancients transcribing manuscripts from one generation to another, assuming they make mistakes in transcription just like we might. It couldn't be further from the truth. And the fact that jots and tittles were dutifully, even slavishly noted, is something we need to reflect on. And we can thank the Pharisees for preserving for us all those ancient texts that have made their way to us all the way down from perhaps the hand of Moses himself to our copies of the Bible today. The Pharisees no doubt got a bad rap in the New Testament, and we should not be ashamed to say, out of the mouth of Jesus. He called them a brood of vipers, blind guides, blind fools, full of greed and self-indulgence, like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Those are quotes. Another quote, Woe to you, he says to them seven times, for teaching about God, but not loving God, for obeying the minutia of the law, but neglecting its most important parts, for claiming to revere the prophets of old, but being just like the ones who murdered them, and so forth. Of course, they weren't all bad. We have some really fine examples in the New Testament mentioned by name. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, even Gamaliel. There are references to many more. Jesus is talking to those who know, or should know, that if the shoe fits, wear it, and that these people fit in those shoes just fine. It's like me with baby boomers. As a class, of course. Exceptions may be many. And any baby boomers may be listening to this. Sorry, don't worry. I love you. As we mentioned in our first lecture, the Pharisees were the ones who had developed and preserved the oral law of the Torah. Their name is drawn from ancient Greek by way of Aramaic and Hebrew to convey the meaning of set aside or separate because they seemed to surface as a separate class of Jewish leaders in that period following the Second Temple period after the Babylonian exile, and even more specifically in the second century BC after the Maccabean revolt. Aside from the gospel accounts, Josephus is the one that first mentions them by that name, and he posits them in this period, where he says they were considered the most expert and accurate expositors of Jewish law. Unlike the Sadducees, who were aristocrats, the Pharisees were popular among the common people, the middle class. Pharisees resented the Sadducees because the Sadducees had rejected their revered oral Torah. Oddly enough, this made the Sadducees even more literal than the Pharisees because they accepted only the written Torah. In the eye for an eye example we discussed in the first lecture, 
The Sadducees wanted that eye plucked out. But harsh rulemaking creates standards impossible to live by. And so the Sadducees were recognized hypocrites because they set standards for others that they could never abide themselves. See, the Pharisees might say, just who is living more according to the law than we are. But thanks to the Pharisees, the law was preserved all the way through the sacking of Jerusalem in 70 AD and on through the great dispersion thereafter and then detailed in the Mishnah at the end of the second century. The Pharisees, in fact, had laid the foundation of rabbinic Judaism, which the sages of the Talmud affirmed and recognized. All mainstream forms of Judaism today consider themselves heirs of rabbinic Judaism and ultimately the Pharisees. The Orthodox Jews would say they are the purest form of them. So sure, the Pharisees as a class got a bad rap at the time of Jesus, but so what? They sure were great at record keeping and did absolutely terrific archival work. You'll also hear, hear the term scribes in the gospel accounts. Scribes were, as their name suggests, writers, copiers, and they were typically drawn from the ranks of the Pharisees. They were more than just copyists, too, and were the kind of professionals that could be associated with government ministers, journalists, or lawyers. If you've read a lot of Dickens and his many descriptions of solicitors in the 19th century, you'd get something closer to the truth. They had very clear rules about how they worked with copies of the Torah and other sacred writings. They could only use clean animal skins. Each column of writing could have no less than 48 and no more than 60 lines. The ink must be black and of a special recipe. They must say each word aloud while they were writing. They must wipe the pen and wash their entire bodies before writing the most holy name of God, Y-H-W-H, every time they wrote it. Someone had to review it within 30 days, and if as many as three pages required corrections, the entire manuscript had to be redone. The letters, words, and paragraphs had to be counted, and the document became invalid if two letters touched each other. The middle paragraph, word, and letter must correspond to those of the original document. You see what I mean about jots and tittles? You think Random House Publishing Company operates under these same standards? There were scribes at the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. My hope is that somewhere, somehow, someone, will you please dig up some old stone vault in Jerusalem and pull out the trial transcripts that some scribes took of Jesus' trial? Well, we can hope, can't we? In any case, when you hear the phrase scribes and Pharisees in the gospel accounts, you're expected to think of the two classes collectively as those who wrote and taught and ruled. Now, there's a third class of people you need to know about, the Herodians. These were followers of the house of Herod, who was sort of a Jewish hybrid who had come to govern the Jews in that region. These followers were mostly found up north in Galilee, and I think of them like those fellows you might find in an English smoking room who pine for the days of King Henry and the like. Herodians liked kings and pageantry, and they also included Pharisees in their ranks. And this is as good a place as any to talk about Herod, because these fellows rather liked the guy, or what he stood for, or what opportunities he may have created for them. Or maybe they just liked maroon-colored smoking jackets, assuming they had them. I don't know. Brutal rulers have always had their admirers, and Herod was one of them. 
This period after the Maccabean Revolt in about 160 AD really set in motion lots of things. About 20 years after that revolt, a Maccabean descendant by the name of Hasmon became high priest, ruler, and ethnarch of Judea. And he established his successors through heredity, thus forming became what was known as the Hasmonean dynasty. This lasted for almost 100 years until squabbles arose over who should be ruler. The Romans, seeing this conflict and sensing an opportunity, decided to invade, and the Roman general Pompey took over Judea in 63 BC. Just before then, in about 73 BC, Herod was born into this dynasty, but with a kind of checkered pedigree. His father was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, and was identified as of Arab stock. His father complicated the matter by marrying the daughter of a noble from Petra in southwest Jordan, who was from another Arab kingdom. So you have a ruler and his wife of non-Jewish stock purporting to rule the Jews, but while at least practicing as Jews and raising their second son, Herod, as one too. When Pompey invaded Rome, Herod's father cooperated with the Romans and secured for himself and for his son a role in the new regime ethnarchs, as they'd be known, meaning that they ruled the people, but subject to the Romans, who ruled the land and the people too, in some weird, complicated way where the Romans basically let the ethnarchs stick to local matters of custom and practice, and especially religion, while the Romans did what they did best, make all roads go to Rome with trade, taxes, and military recruits. The story gets even more complicated thereafter and is of the same kind of power, intrigue, sex, betrayal, and murder you'll find in any TV show that has the word primetime added before it. The short of it is that Herod and his father had curried such favor with the Romans, including Mark Antony and Julius Caesar, that Herod was able to become the unchallenged ruler in Judea, with the backing of Rome in the year 37 BC, when only 36 years old, but only after he had killed off his nephew dumped his wife, banished her and his son, and then married the granddaughter of one of the Hasmonean rulers. To secure his rule, he then killed off other members of his family, including his Hasmonean princess wife. But that's okay, because he had eight other wives to draw from, 14 children between them, which include the two children he killed along with his Hasmonean princess wife, her brother, her grandfather, and her mother. See, this way, this ruler of Arab descent could lay claim to be the real ethnarch of the Jewish people and have no contenders to his throne. That kind of behavior wasn't terribly uncommon among rulers of his time, or since then. But hey, you should see the public works he built. They were impressive then, and they are impressive now. He built the ancient seaport and administrative center at Maritime Caesarea, about 60 miles northwest of Jerusalem. He built an amphitheater for plays and performances a hippodrome that seated 20,000 spectators for chariot races, all kinds of aqueducts that brought water to this very parched land, the famous fortress of Masada and Herodium, and he also served as the president of, yes, the Olympic Games. He did business with Cleopatra, um, official business that is, mining asphalt from the Dead Sea, which was used for shipbuilding. He leased copper mines on the island of Cyprus, and most significantly, he began work on the most eagerly awaited project of all, 
the new temple in Jerusalem, which he began in around 20 or 19 BC. He employed 1,000 priests as masons and carpenters, and the building lasted for some 80 years until the Romans smashed it in 70 AD. One wall of it on the western side remains to this day and is known as the Western Wall. Despite the rightful weeping that has occurred there, the wall is not known by the Jews as the Wailing Wall, as it is often called, as that is considered derogatory. Well, one reaps what one sows, and Herod reaped much pain and grief as he aged. He suffered from depression and paranoia. He acquired something that most medical people say was arteriosclerosis, but you need to hear how Josephus described it in this extended detail. Quote, By now, Herod's distemper greatly increased upon him after a severe manner, and this by God's judgment upon him for his sins. For a fire glowed in him slowly, which did not so much appear to the touch outwardly, as it augmented his pains inwardly. For it brought upon him a vehement appetite to eating, which he could not avoid to supply with one sort of food or other. His entrails were also exulcerated, and the chief violence of his pain lay on his colon. An aqueous and transparent liquor had also settled itself about his feet, and a like matter afflicted him at the bottom of his belly. Nay, further, his privy member was putrefied and produced worms, and when he sat upright he had a difficulty of breathing, which was very loathsome on account of the stench of his breath and the quickness of its returns. He had also convulsions in all parts of his body, which increased his strength to an insufferable degree. End quote. Yes, folks, his penis turned to stone and produced worms. Too much information? Probably. But let this be assigned to any of you who are tempted to become ruthless rulers. And by the way, this is not the same Herod who will meet up with Jesus later in our story. He was not quite the same kind of brutal leader his father was. He had probably heard about that wormy thing. So Herod died, Herod the Great as he is known, and we'll talk about the date of his death later, whether it was in 4 BC or possibly later. That too is generated debate because this is the same guy who, after some magi came from the east to ask him where they might find this new king, chased after the baby Jesus and, not finding him, killed all infants under two years old he could find in Bethlehem instead. So if this really is the same guy, then Jesus needed to be born before 4 BC, or whenever it was that Herod died. Herod left three sons as rulers, who we'll talk about in our next lecture on the Sanhedrin. But we needed to talk about their old man now so you could understand the Herodians, who were active with that name at the time of Jesus more than 30 years later. They liked this guy. They wanted more of him. See what I mean? Bunch of damn idiots sitting around in smoking jackets, pining away for the good old days. I hope they got that wormy thing. So now you have the cast of characters, at least by class, who are divided between themselves, but united in their hatred for Jesus. And it didn't matter that they hated him for different reasons. The Sadducees hated Jesus because he threatened their power, their stability with Rome, and the temple, and their temple income. Not good. The Pharisees hated Jesus because he rejected their revered oral traditions, their casuistic interpretation of the law, and because he tolerated the defiled, like sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes, and because of all those woes he gave them. Not good either. And the Herodians? Yeah, they hated Jesus for all these same reasons too. 
not good. So Jesus didn't seem to care about Dale Carnegie's advice about how to win friends and influence people. These three groups, the dominant groups in the region who dominated both civil and criminal authority, had lots of reasons to hate Jesus, and they only needed the chance to get him. And they found that chance. It fell in their laps, providentially, we should say. There were five other times the authorities tried to arrest Jesus before they actually arrested him. John records four of them. During the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus was in the temple courts preaching, and he said, quote, I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me, end quote. At this, the passage in John says, chapter 7, verse 30, quote, So they sought to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come, end quote. See that angle by John that we talked about in lecture one? They couldn't arrest him even if they had wanted to. His hour had not come. And see the possible grounds for the arrest? It has the tincture of blasphemy in it as they try to arrest him right after he says he came from God and God sent him. The same thing happened at the Feast of the Temple Dedication. He was speaking in the treasury of the temple, which is a side building to the temple, most likely probably not far from where the money changers sat. And when they asked him, quote, where is your father, end quote, he replied, quote, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also, end quote. And they tried to arrest him again, but again, his hour had not come. Then there was a time Jesus started throwing money tables around at the temple, probably right near the treasury department. What do you think the Sadducees thought about that little event? And two times they tried to stone him. That didn't work. Luke records the time when they tried to toss him over the hill at Nazareth until he mysteriously, quote, walked through their midst. That description suggests he had a kind of spooky kryptonite effect on everyone around him. So the upshot is this. They've been trying to arrest him for a long time and it just wasn't working. But finally, it did. We know this much about the timing of Jesus' final arrest. It was after the raising of Lazarus and before the Passover. And it occurred during a particularly interesting exchange between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We get this cryptic reference in John, quote, If we let him go on thus, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation, end quote. Now that you know the backstory, you can see all the meaning in this taunt of so few words. Look, people, can't you see that if we don't stop him, the Romans are going to come and get us? Kind of a strange charge that doesn't quite square with typical Pharisaical worldview. They didn't particularly care about picking fights with the Romans. They hated the Romans because the Romans had usurped their land, the very land that God had promised them and had given to them. Plenty of them, shall we say, were itching for a fight. And in less than 40 years, they picked that fight. So you have to see what the Pharisees were really saying to the Sadducees. This guy's upsetting your power base. You better do something about it. And then that's why you get this snarky reply from Caiaphas, quote, you know nothing at all, end quote. No niceties there, no collegial recognition, 
quote, Better that one man die, he said, than a whole nation perish, end quote. See that worldly superiority in that tone? You dare to lecture us on politics and foreign policy? This exchange also shows who hated Jesus more. The Sadducees hadn't quite thought Jesus was that much of a problem. They didn't care about the religious side of things, and they knew that's what Jesus was talking about. But you can sure see that the Pharisees sure did, and they thought they needed to prod the Sadducees to act against him. So the Gospels tell us this. They agreed to do this two days before Passover, and they wanted three things done. First, they wanted to seize him by stealth and, quote, not on the feast, which is important, as we'll see. We don't know why they didn't want him arrested on the feast, and there's been loads of speculation why they didn't. Was it because they didn't want it to interfere with their feasting? Was it because the guards had the day off? Was it because the people would resent it? Was it because, as some posit, it would violate some Jewish criminal procedure law, like the one in the Mishnah that said you couldn't convene any trials or allow for any executions on the feast day? Hmm, we really don't know. Second, they wanted to publish Jesus' whereabouts. That much is clear. Jerusalem is a crowded place, especially during the feast. And so you need good intelligence where he is. Go to the market, go to the wells, go to the baths, go to the gates. He'll show up at one of those places for sure. He has plenty of times before. Third, they wanted to kill Lazarus. You can't have some dead guy walking around still. You need to finish him off for good. I've always wondered what Lazarus must have thought when he heard they wanted to kill him too. Uh, wait, I'm not going through that again. Better scoot. The Eastern Orthodox have a tradition that because of this threat, he indeed scooted into the island of Cyprus, where a few years later, two travelers by the names of Paul and Barnabas arrived and appointed him bishop. At this point, Judas steps forward. He's called Iscariot, which means he was the man from Cariot, which is where? We don't know. There are two ancient places named Cariot, as it's said in Aramaic, one in South Judea and one in Moab across the River Jordan. He could have been from either place. We do know, however, he was the only Judean disciple, that region in the south, and he may have had an air of superiority, as most Judeans had over those from that hick country in the north, Galilee. Judas, we knew, was provided a sum of money for his intelligence and transfer of Jesus, the price of a slave, as Matthew tells us. There's one thing about Judas that we don't really know, but which has developed from some unknown origin, whether he had red hair. Yes, all of you gingers take note. Sometime in the medieval period, references started popping up, both in art and literature and on stained glass windows and cathedrals throughout Europe, depicting Judas with red hair. It was so prevalent by the time of Shakespeare that you could have Rosalind in As You Like It say to Celia about her intended lover, quote, I mean, his hair is even red, the same color as that lying Judas, end quote. All due deference to Bill here, there isn't a shred of evidence that Judas had red hair and the source of the tradition is unknown. Nor is there much evidence to explain why Judas did what he did. Was he greedy? Did he need 30 pieces of silver to pay off some gambling debt? Was he conflicted? Was he altruistic? Plenty of people have tried to come to Judas's defense over the years. 
It doesn't sit well to think that someone must have intended to do something really bad because we don't like thinking of the consequences for someone intending to do something really bad, especially like betraying the good gentle Jesus. Oh, he meant well. He was just misunderstood. He was a zealot, you know, and so his concern for good government really got the better part of him. He became disillusioned because he thought Jesus was going to overturn Roman rule and Jesus had made clear that his kingdom was not of this world. He really wasn't betraying Jesus. He was placating authorities and he intended to broker some kind of peace between them. After all, he killed himself because he was so miserable over it. And he cried to the temple priest, I have sinned in that I have betrayed innocent blood. Poor Judas, God will have mercy on his soul because he meant well. On the other hand, maybe he was just some scumbag who betrayed Jesus to get extra cash and who killed himself because he couldn't come to grips with being a scumbag. He might have been. We know he used to steal out of the group money bag. Who the hell would do that? Especially when it was destined for the poor. Jesus talks about weeds being planted among the crops. Weeds being bad things, a reference to bad people. Maybe he was just bad people. That's not hard to imagine either. Jesus intentionally selects, as one of his intimate followers, a very bad person. Makes sense to me. A nice signpost about what to expect from certain church leaders from thenceforward. Plenty of others have been chosen to be intimate followers of Jesus, and they've been very bad people, too. And lest I forget the splinter in my own eye and look at the beams in the eyes of others, aren't all of us, during plenty of times in our lives, betrayers too? What else is sin but rank betrayal? In the end, we have no idea why Judas did what he did. The Gospels are silent. It doesn't stop Dante from putting him at the lowest possible place in hell. And that seems consistent with the words that came from Jesus' own lips. Quote, it were better that he had never been born. End quote. Never been born. Think about that one when you want to think he was just some misunderstood political activist. Non-existence was his better option. Judas knew where Jesus would be. He left the Last Supper early. They had probably talked during dinner about where they would go afterwards. Up to Gethsemane, a word that means oil press. Scholars say the exact location is unknown. Matthew, Mark, and Luke refer to it by name, with Luke going further and locating it at, quote, the Mount of Olives. John doesn't refer to it by name, but says they went to the Kapos, meaning a garden or orchard that was, quote, over the brook Cadron. Mark calls it a chorion, meaning a place or estate. John also says that Judas knew the place because Jesus had often stayed there with his disciples. But John, who is writing to Christians, cares less about the formal name of the place and figures that his readers had already heard of it by name. And so he wanted to remind us that from this garden would come the salvation of the world, which had been lost ever since Adam and Eve's exile from a garden. So from a garden of Eden to a garden at the foot of the holy city to a garden of paradise. Early Christians pinpointed the place at the base of the Mount of Olives, not on top. It was on that mount where David had fled from his son Absalom a thousand years before. Ezekiel talks about how the glory of the Lord had left Jerusalem and, quote, stopped above the mountain east of it, which is that mount. He also prophesied that the Lord would return to the city, 
which is why the people then looked east for the Lord's return. Jesus had been on top of that mount before, preaching to his disciples on it, and looking over Jerusalem and weeping. The Acts of the Apostles have him ascending into heaven from it. Here's what we know. They went to a place near the Mount of Olives. There was probably an oil press there. They had stayed there before. They probably knew the owner of the estate, as Jesus was no trespasser. The owner had probably given them some kind of KOA campground pass to stay there anytime they wanted. And so they went, all stuffed with lamb and matzo and filled with probably the best wine they'd ever tasted in their lives, even better than at Cana, which they'd never forgotten. It was about a mile and a quarter walk there from the traditional site at where they had dined. It was night, of course, because it was after dinner, which started around sundown, which occurs around 7 p.m. there in April. Dinner had gone a good couple of hours, particularly with Jesus' startling final speech to them. They had sung a hymn, and then, it almost sounds abruptly, they up and left for Gethsemane. It would have been abrupt if, as some theologians have explained, they didn't stay after that hymn for the fourth cup of the Passover meal. Ah, but that puts us in a whole separate lecture. Assuming they were dining in the southwest quadrant of the city, which is where there seems to be a common agreement on where they were, they needed to get across the Kidron Valley on the east side of the city. That valley, which was a large, steep gully, a couple of hundred yards wide, was on the east side of the city wall. There was a gate to the east and south of them, the Essene Gate, and it's possible they went out that gate, down the ravine, and then up along the valley by the Cadron Stream, which was known as a torrent at that time of year. That would have put them along with the eastern wall of the city, going past whitewashed sepulchres and tombs hewn into the rock cliffs along the edge. Because it was Passover, the moon was full, so they would have had plenty of light to see by it. But that would have meant they had to backtrack a bit, rather than just head north, down the Tyropian Valley that cut between Mount Zion and Mount Moriah, where the Temple Mount was, and up through the working-class neighborhood of Ophel, up the long stairs to the temple, to the large flat temple grounds, and out the gate known variously as the Eastern Gate, or the Golden Gate, or the Gate of Mercy. It led directly out from the temple area, across a double-tiered, arched bridge that spanned the Cadron Creek and over to the Mount of Olives. It was through this gate Ezekiel said the Lord would return. Jesus had ridden through it on a donkey just four days before. He would likely return through it later that night. Either road they took, they came to what must have been a nice shady grove of olive trees, cleared some leaves, and sat down. They could look back across the Kidron and see the amazing walls and skyline of Jerusalem, an ancient city even then, with the temple huge and dominating the northeast corner, huge torches lighting up the temple, Herod's mansion across the way, and the larger thoroughfares leading down from the Temple Mount to the lower parts of the city. Pontius Pilate was also across the way in his praetorium, either at the fortress of Antonia or at Herod the Great's larger mansion, fretting about potential unrest from these crazy locals and perhaps getting reports from his assistants that those irksome Jewish leaders were hatching some plan to get rid of a local young preacher they envied. Great Jupiter, I want nothing to do with that, he may have been thinking. 
His soldiers were restless, as they always were at the times of high feasts. Anything could happen. Anything often happened. This was the frontier, far from civilized Rome. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long have I wanted to hold you in my arms as a mother holds her child? I'm sure Jesus had recalled his own words from before. Here was the place where his tradition understood Abraham had brought his son Isaac to sacrifice and whose hand was stayed, allowing him to build an altar to God on that very spot. The very spot where a thousand years earlier, his ancestor David, whose DNA he carried in his flesh, founded this city of peace. The very spot where David's son Solomon first built a magnificent temple. The very spot which saw it burnt and smashed to the ground by invading Babylonians. The very spot where that monster Herod had begun reconstruction of it, which was only about 46 years earlier, as the Jews had reflected on when Jesus had told them that he was around before Abraham. The very spot where his mom and dad had presented him as a gift to God, poor people that they were, who could only afford two turtle doves to sacrifice. The very spot where he asked questions of the elders there just 12 years later. The very spot where he made a whip of cords, turned over money tables, leaving Roman and Jewish coinage to clank and roll everywhere and leave greedy merchants cursing the day he was born. The very spot just four days earlier where he rode into the city, not on some high horse or chariot, but as Zechariah had foretold, on a humble donkey, and his people sang Hosanna to him and put palm branches in his path. Yes, all those fine people now snugly tucked into their beds just across the way. Smoke and the smell of barbecue still probably hung in the air, as well as the smoldering heat trash heap of Gehenna wafting across the southwest walls of the city on the other side. It was cold, we know that, because Peter and the others were later warming themselves before a charcoal fire in the courtyard of the high priest. And if you're a believer, it must have been unexplainably spooky and eerie, because it was Satan's highest hour, and for sure, he was there. But you were tired. You were full. Maybe you are a little buzzed, had a nice nap, curled up warm in your cloak, would have been something you were looking for. And you must have been wondered what you were doing wrong. Twice now, Jesus had told you to wake up and watch what was going on. He was even harsh. Can't you wait even one hour with me? What the heck? We're having such a good time. And then, just as you're settling back in your nice nap, a crowd appears. No crowd comes silently. They talk. They murmur. They shuffle their feet. They rattle with chains, swords, canteens. Who came? Let's talk about that because it's not as clear as you might think. Matthew says, quote, a great crowd came from, quote, the chief priests and the elders of the people. See that word elders? He says the crowd came from the elders too. Mark says the crowd came from, quote, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. See that word scribes? He says the crowd came from the scribes too. See, these scribes weren't just simply quill writers and pushers. They had authority to send people, to get people. Please come with us. Our notaries would like to see you. Luke says, quote, a mob was there. And he says, high priests and elders were present. Now, that's one of those details scholars aren't sure what to make of. 
Does he mean they were actually there when Matthew and Mark indicate they were not there but had sent people there for them? Or does he mean they were virtually there because they had their agents there for them? It's a little hard to imagine a bunch of old codgers there unless they were looking for a little walk after dinner. So who knows? John says, quote, attendants from chief priests and Pharisees were there. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he doesn't say the chief priests and Pharisees were actually there. He says attendants from them were there. So where does that leave Luke in his description of the old codgers there? Seems to suggest he was thinking of virtual presence. So you've got all kinds of people there. A great crowd or a mob that included attendants. And they had come from the chief priests, elders, scribes, and Pharisees. The Herodians were probably off in some smoking lounge somewhere. We've talked about who some of these groups actually were. But who were the attendants? Hyperates, he calls them which is Greek for over-under, and originally applied to boat rower slaves, but which came to mean a kind of servant. We're not quite sure what he's referring to, but scholars think the word points to attendance of some Jewish police force. But there were two kinds of Jewish police in Jerusalem. One was associated with the temple, and they maintained order within the temple precincts. They were more than what we might be thinking of as security guards, because the temple was a huge area of the city with a great deal of activity, and the Levites and their assistants were involved in all kinds of things, including keeping order in that area. There were the gatekeepers, watchmen who guarded the entrance to the temple mount, and there were those in charge of cleaning of the temple precincts. According to one Jewish authority, Levites were stationed at 21 points in the temple court, and at three of them, priests kept watch during the night captain patrolled with a lantern to see that the watchmen were at their posts, and if one was found sleeping, the captain had the right to beat him and to set fire to his garments. Josephus says that the opening and the closing of the gates required the services of at least 20 men, and a special officer was appointed to superintend that work. But because this force was Levitical, meaning related to the temple and the temple alone, its members really didn't have any authority outside temple precincts, unless some great crisis was occurring outside the area. Arresting Jesus doesn't seem to be that kind of crisis. The other kind of police force in the city was not altogether clear. There were plenty of laws in Jerusalem, and that meant the need to enforce them. Laws regulating weights and measures, market prices, labor, so forth, along with the other kinds of laws you'd expect to see in any city. All kinds of sanitary laws, building restrictions, public rights away, and even laws for such things as keeping vicious dogs chained up, making sure you fixed broken ladders, removed decayed trees, repaired falling walls, and never sold weapons to suspicious persons. And then there were all the crimes against persons one might expect. Theft, robbery, murder, and mayhem. The officials administered these kinds of matters too, except for capital crimes, which were handled by Romans. And then, of course, there were Roman laws and Roman jurisdiction over those laws and enforcement of those laws by Roman soldiers. The chief priest would soon be asking the Romans to enforce laws regarding one of their own. But we're talking about attendance here, and this term is more likely thought of as attendance to the Jewish police, who are not part of temple supervision 
and who were instead paid out of the public treasury and reported to various local magistrates who decided whether and how to punish offenders. So again, who were the attendants of the Garden of Gethsemane that night? Scholars don't know, although some, like Blinsler, believe it was this latter kind of police force they were attendants to. But here's what's probably the most curious reference in this whole passage of the arrest. John refers to the cohort in the Tribune. You'll see plenty of movies showing some Roman guards at Gethsemane, but you need to regard them as fiction. First, the term cohort had a very precise meaning at the time. It was a military term of art that meant 600 soldiers. It also was used to refer to the Roman garrison stationed at the fortress of Antonia, which was located just north of the temple grounds, adjacent to it. But no one thinks there were 600 soldiers or the entire Roman garrison at the Garden of Gethsemane. And there are lots of reasons to think so besides just numbers. First, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't refer to it. And Luke, especially, was familiar with Romans and Roman practices. Remember, Luke just took the trouble to imply that some chief priests and elders were actually there. Why wouldn't he mention the Romans if they were there too? It would have been a big dang deal, and you would think he would have mentioned it if they were indeed there. And if he would have mentioned it, that would leave us to wonder how it was that all the soldiers in the fortress of Antonia were summoned to a garden area about a quarter mile away through the eastern gate, across the bridge, and then tramping around some guy's olive press in search of some fellow with just a dozen of his friends. We should be glad Luke didn't mention it so we don't have to speculate or explain how that occurred. Second, we know the arresting party came from the Sanhedrin, not from the fortress. That's why they took Jesus to the Sanhedrin and not to the fortress. That's why a great crowd was there, not because they came at the behest of Pilate, but because they came at the behest of the chief priests, elders, scribes, and Pharisees. Third, someone would have needed Pilate's permission to fetch all his soldiers, and we hear no peep of that. Pilate was not going to let the Jews borrow his troops to do their bidding. Romans wouldn't do that kind of thing, and Jews wouldn't ask for that kind of thing. It's the same kind of thing you see in all those cop shows, struggles over authority between local cops and the FBI or CIA. If this is a federal matter, the feds want control, and they aren't going to do the bidding of some city detectives. Why would Pilate help make an arrest and let the locals do the prosecuting? And why would the locals want the feds in on the action? Fourth, the Romans would have taken him to a Roman prison, not to the Sanhedrin. In fact, they didn't even take him to the Sanhedrin right away. They took him to Annas. Why would the Romans suffer that? Uh, look, Hebrews, uh, but we're on the clock right now, and this little detour to your guy Annas is not really part of our little arrangement here. Fifth, we get a description later on about who was warming themselves by the fire in the courtyard. We hear about servants and attendants. You don't think any Romans would have liked to edge the chill off too? Sixth, after the trial that night, Jews alone took Jesus to Pilate the next morning. Why didn't any Romans accompany them then? For the most important and most official aspect of their supposed engagement. Did they get lost in some pub somewhere? Not then for sure. Seventh, and I could go on, scholars do by the way, John never says Roman cohort, or Roman Tribune, which would have really nailed it. He just says cohort and tribune. 
So what the heck did he mean when he said that? There are some diehards who say, well, if he said it, he meant it, and so we need to believe there were Romans there, in spite of all these wonderful reasons we just gave that show why it makes no sense at all for any of them to be there, much less 600 of them. That's where literalism will get the best of you if you insist on it and read in Scripture. You end up trying to account for stupid conclusions. So what's the best explanation? Well, some historians think it was a slang reference. A sharp barb pointed right at the temple guard and its commander, with tongue firmly planted in cheek, as if, when writing to the early Christians, as John was, he was calling to mind something like we would think with the Keystone Cops. They were some joke, all puffed up with pride and authority, like, and you know, those clowns even brought their cohort and tribune with them against our peaceful, gentle Lord and Savior. Can you believe it? So I think we need to get out of our minds that there were any Romans in Gethsemane. There were attendants from the Sanhedrin and probably the temple guard with its commander, which may have made sense because of the path Jesus may have walked with his disciples from the Last Supper. Hot pursuit generates expansive jurisdiction, and maybe they took a similar opportunity. So along with the Keystone Cops and a scumbag betrayer was another guy in the garden too, by name, quote, a slave named Malchus. He was, Matthew tells us, a personal servant to the high priest. Why was he there? Probably to report back to Caiaphas and let him know if they nabbed him, and if so, to be sure to bring him to Annas first for interrogation. We have this amazing story about Malchus. John and Luke both say, with more detail than what Matthew provides, quote, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear, end quote. Note this curious detail. He cut off his right ear. Why his right ear? Should we care? Maybe not. But I find it interesting because I've always wondered how you cut off someone's ear without slashing their shoulder or neck. In fact, when artists depict this detail, they usually show Peter in some downward motion that cuts off the ear and then what, we must ask, not crush his collarbone? We have the miracle, the ear, not the collarbone. I have to say, I haven't come across scholars addressing this detail very much, which I find odd because they address every other possible detail. There is one guy who did, and he speculated it had something to do with the right ear being the dominant ear, and the servant is connected to the high priest who was supposed to hear, and now he can't hear, and, well, the theory isn't terribly clear, and Father Brown doesn't think so either. And, in my strange imaginings, it still doesn't account for any broken collarbone. But, if you'll allow me, I thought of this detail when I was watching our kids at sword play. Not real swords, of course. Those cool plastic ones where you could whack that crap out of somebody and laugh when you scored or wince when you got hit. When you're really trying to kill someone with your sword, you go for the head in a quick horizontal arc. That's what my boys would do to each other, and sometimes I think they were serious. And when you're really trying to avoid being killed and you can't back up, you lean way over to the side away from the arc. We didn't lose any ears or heads in our family because our boys are very good at this technique. I'm sure collarbones got bru bruised though. See, I think this detail about Malchus's right ear tells us something interesting about Peter. Let's assume Peter was right-handed, like most people are. If you're right-handed, you keep your scabbard on your left for easy retrieval by reaching across your midsection for it, where it'll be at the ready, not like if it's at the same side and you have to change grips. So when you're rash and you're full of passion, as Peter was, 
as he demonstrated multiple times throughout the gospel accounts, you reach for your sword, you grab the hilt, you swing it out in one straight, quick, horizontal arc without need to change grip, and you lunge at that ugly, drooling, toothless, grinning, miscreant slave who is there to take your master from you, and you what? You try to cut off his head. So Malcolm acts like anyone else would do, and you can't back up in time. He leans way over to the left, away from Peter's left-to-right swing, and exposes his right ear from earlobe up, bottom to top, to a nice, clean swoosh. And it's off. And everyone notices and probably gasps. And Jesus picks up the ear, wipes the dirt and blood off it, puts it back on the guy's head. And people said, wow. And so the account is not only about the wow event, but I think it's also about Peter's passion. Without that detail, you really don't get how mad Peter was because this was the same guy several minutes later who denied Jesus while warming himself by a fire in the courtyard of the high priest. Hot and cold, literally figuratively, the leader of the apostles, the rock on which Jesus would build his church. Yep, he too was capable of passionate rage, rash action, betrayal, denial, and yet solemn, soulful, contrition, and repentance. A nice reminder for those of us cut out of the same cloth. Now, after I thought about this swashbuckling event, I came across this passage in St. Thomas Aquinas' commentary in the Gospel of John. And yep, unlike all the modern exegetes, he saw it the same way too. St. Thomas says it was not Peter's intention to cut off Malchus's ear. He says, quote, Rather, he wanted to kill him, but the strike to the servant's head missed and struck the ear. Peter aimed for the head so that he could more easily show he was doing it out of zeal for his Lord, quote, I have been very jealous for the Lord, citing 1 Kings 19.10. St. Thomas also points out that John knew the high priest's servant's name, Malchus, because we'll see in a few more verses, John was known to the high priest. I love all that. It's yet another reminder that almost no thought about scripture is a new thought. Somebody else long ago has already been there, done that, planted the pole, discovered the land. It's yet another reminder that for all the reading we do of modern scholarship, it's best to do that with an eye on the church fathers. What were the grounds for Jesus' arrest? We don't know, but we can speculate based on what they tried to accuse him of and had accused him of before. Blasphemy, violating the Sabbath, engaging in prophecy or magic, and being a pseudo-prophet. We'll talk about these more at the trial. Oddly enough, a written warrant was required by law as we see discussed in the Acts of the Apostles. We don't have a copy of the written warrant. Wouldn't that make for some great archaeological find in the future? Jesus' arrest warrant. Some think it would have been issued to the temple guard at the order of the Sanhedrin. Now, there's no reason to think that didn't happen. Temple guard had night watchmen, and they were used to dealing with suspicious characters. There's no reason to think that they would be in conflict with the Sanhedrin, especially because plenty of members of the Sanhedrin, most especially the high priest, supervise activity over the temple. Plus, I wonder if there wasn't a sheer exigent reason why they were involved. If Jesus and his band had left the eastern gate by the temple, it seems likely that someone would have recalled seeing them when they got the all-points bulletin that had just been issued, thanks to Judas's helpful solicitation. Hey, they just came through this way. They're probably right across the creek over there. Was the arrest proper? Probably. 
Nothing in the gospel accounts indicates it was outside the normal rules of Jewish law. Indeed, when Jesus protests, he doesn't challenge its legality. You come against me as against a robber, even though I was daily with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not lay hands on me. Yes, they treated him as a robber, probably with the same measure of formality and brutality. Let's be clear, they had no reason whatsoever to treat him kindly, as they might arrest some dignitary dining at the country club, apologetically and with all due respect. Um, this way, sir, watch your step. You might want to grab your cloak there. It's a little chilly tonight. Here, can I hold the torch by you? No, this was a mob out for vengeance. Their masters hated him, so they hated him too. Might even score a few points with the boss when you got to snicker with him about the rough-up afterwards. The disciples certainly recognized it like no friendly gathering. We talked about Peter. After his sword swing, they ran like hell, including Peter. One of them ran off naked after losing his cloak. If they tried to seize him, it says, tradition says it was Mark, because he was the one who added this detail. But we don't know who it was. What we do know is this mob now had succeeded in its arrest and was on its way to take Jesus to be tried for his crimes. Back down the slope of the Mount of Olives, across the bridge, over the River Cadron, back through the Eastern Gate by the temple. They had their man. Their spirits were high. Their bosses would be pleased with them. Maybe get a little extra something for their efforts. Maybe a little backslapping. Someone to run ahead, spread the news. Nothing to fear. They came with arms and clubs. This guy's friends were gone, pack of cowards. They'd get him later if they needed to. All that matters is that finally, finally, they got this guy and they were bringing him in, probably a little worse for the wear, and with possible evidence of an oily kiss on his cheek from his betrayer, dried blood on his fingers from a severed ear, and still fresh blood droplets on his brow, as Luke the physician, who was competent to write about such medical things, tells us, because Jesus knew what was in store for him. In our next lecture, we will look at where they took him and why they took him where they took him. Jesus is now headed for a trial, for an event, as we said at the outset, brought by one or more people against him who claimed he had violated some rule of law. In this case, he was headed for the Sanhedrin, but first, he'd have a little stop along the way, a preliminary hearing, as it were, before one of the most powerful men in all of Judea, Annas. Who was Annas? Why did they bring Jesus to him? What happened when they did bring Jesus to him? What was going on in the courtyard below? Plenty of drama, to be sure. Please join us for Lecture 3, The Preliminary Hearing.